Hello, my name is David Boyle and I'm the author of Counterweight, the latest essay by the Local Trust. And in a moment we're going to discuss some of the things I've written about around the table. But first, we're going to go to Wormley and Turnford, big local, for a location report where we're going to talk about some of the issues around their relationship with local authorities and some of the implications of that. There's a, a walk this morning, it's for people with reduced mobility, and then we have tea and coffee afterwards. OK, so, all right, let's go. My name's Noel Blackman, and I'm currently the chair of Wormley and Turn for Big Local. I have been for two years, I think. Is that right? I think that's right. You're living more than that. I'm Breda Higgins and I'm a retired resident. I do volunteer walk and um, a walking leader for a walk every Tuesday. So my name is Michał Siewniak. I'm a paid member of staff. So I've been working and supporting Warmington for B local area for a year and a half now. So time flies. This is formerly a clinic. It's the very back of our community centre. This clinic had been unused for quite a few years and we persuaded our council to let us take it over on a peppercorn rent. We've opened up what was the counter and put a little kitchen in there and we've now got a tea room, we call it, and it's a, a thriving place now. Lots of things happen here. So you have ballet classes, dance school for children as well. You have every Saturday slimming ward, always so very, very popular. There's active hearts on a Thursday night. There's a baby group on a Wednesday. The youth club operating from the community centre. Breeders' walking groups, arts and crafts. There's sewing on a Monday night. We have English class. There's counselling, isn't there? The Citizens Advice Bureau is just setting up here. And then we also have art groups. And also the local church now meet there every Sunday morning. If we are able to take the community centre on, I think we can definitely deliver many more activities which can directly impact and benefit the local community. Three or maybe four years ago, our council made a decision that in order to save money, I was going to sell off all of our community centres and halls. One of the key things for Wormley and Turnford is that we don't really have any places to meet where things can happen, and it would be a disaster to lose it. Some local residents who happen to be partnership members of Wormley and Turnford Big Local put a community asset order on the community centre which meant that the council wouldn't be able to sell it to anybody else without giving the local community six months to gather themselves to see whether they could buy it. So that, I think, was a real surprise to the council. They had a very clear plan um, and they were going to demolish it and build more housing. We worked very hard to try and meet with the council leader. It took us a long time for them to really engage with us and eventually we had our first meeting with them. But I think they didn't take us very seriously. They thought we'd just go away. They didn't think we'd have the persistence, the strength, or any money and then we kind of scuppered things they were quite fed up with us really in march last year there was suddenly a really big change we got a new leader for our council a young guy around 27 years old he was really keen on what we were doing very supportive he said i really want to support this venture because i just think what you're doing is amazing and it looks as though we will take possession of an asset transfer of a 999 year lease the clinic and the big hall and we're going to extend above it. We have a very uh, robust business plan that shows that we can not only pay our way and pay for the staff to run it, but mainly that will enable us to put on events here that are accessible to our local communities. What we've seen in the very short time that we've taken over this little part of the building is so many activities that have drawn people in that now people know one another. I see people that go past me in my village that I never knew before. I would probably 
probably have seen them every day and now I know them and that's just an amazing thing. It's changed it from a place I live to a community I live in really. Thank you everybody very much for coming along. Probably the 15th in our podcast series based around this fantastic essay that David Boyle has written us. This series of essays looks at how Big Local is working in communities. Big Local being this fantastic programme, lottery funded, which takes 150 communities, gives them just over a million pounds to shape their own community's futures. Uh, We are seeing great impacts from Big Local right across the board. This particular essay looks at the way that participatory democracy, Big Local is a form of that, works alongside the representative democracy, the relationships between local authorities and Big Local, and then sort of takes a step back and looks at some of the tensions or some of the opportunities of having a functioning democracy in a local place. Lots to discuss. I'm James Goodman. I'm the Partnerships Director at Local Trust. And if we go around the table this way. I'm Graham Atkins. I'm a researcher at the Institute for Government. Uh, I'm Adam Lent. I'm the director of the New Local Government Network. We're a think tank uh, and a network of around about 60 local authorities uh, across the country. And we are very, very focused on this idea of community power. I'm David Boyle and I'm from a think tank called New Weather. And I'll be talking to you in a second. I'm Noel Blackman. I'm the chair of Wormley and Tanford Big Local. Uh, my name is Michal Szewniak and I'm a paid member of staff at Wormley and Tanford Big Local. I'm Jane Nicholl and I'm the paid community development worker with Big Local DY10, HGB. But I was actually a member of the partnership in that big local area before I became employed by them. Uh, I'm Brenda Lines. I'm the chair of the Big Local Kidderminster and I work with Jane. I'm Jonathan Shaw. I'm chief executive of Policy Connect, which is a cross-party think tank. I'm also a recovering politician. I was a <laughs> government minister, MP and, and a local council. I'm Jess Wembin-Smith. I'm head of communications at Local Trust. I'm very keen to hear what your conversation is about. Thanks, everyone. It's great that you're here. And I'd like to hand over to David Boyle, who's going to talk us through his fantastic essay. I'm going to stand up. I'm afraid my voice is not what it was. And so I may just sort of give up slightly, in which case, well, I'll act it out in some way. Now, I'm not sure I'm allowed to say some of these things, so you might have to take these things out. Let's say a little bit about the origin of this, which was that under a Corbyn government, which um, there was some thought we might have until recently, there would be more pressure on the participative side of democracy. There might be a feeling that perhaps decisions about funding ought to be taken by people who have been properly elected. Anyway, it's obviously not a fear of anybody's now, but um, equally that was the reason that I was asked to do this originally. And I went to four places, in fact. One of them, in fact, hasn't appeared because... uh, They'd fallen out so much with the council and they managed to put pressure on them to withdraw. And I won't say which council it was, but I think it's a pity they, were, they weren't involved in the end. Yeah, we're talking about the difference here between participative democracy and representative democracy. And there's sort of great traditions that lie behind those two things, because they neither of them think that the other one is legitimate. That's the problem, isn't it? You know, the, the local councils think, well, what are these people doing? Have they been elected? No, they haven't. But equally, the other people say, well, you know, we're the grassroots. And if you're not doing it for us, who are you doing it for? You know, where did it all start from? It seems to me that it started from Tony Gibson, who was an ambulance driver, Quaker ambulance driver, in Stepney in the Blitz at the point when it was abandoned by the government, central government, to its fate. He watched while they broke into the local community, broke into the local council, organised basic social services, basic police. He held, this, held on to this vision for decades during the dark years until the 70s when he wrote People Power and he did a whole lot of other things too. So um, Tony Gibson's hugely important, but maybe it began at other times. Maybe it began when the communities got something to offer themselves. That's the point, isn't it? Sort of slightly Platonist point. 
So I've learned a huge amount from this, as I did for the last time I did one. And I've learned particularly, I think, the importance of relationships and the importance of institution building and people building. So I think that's um, all I've got to say. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. So hence the title Counterweight, the balance of representative and participatory working together in a community. Having read the essay, what, what you thought of it, what your, what your reflections were. Jonathan. Mixed. I mean, I think that the determination of people to push hard against intransigent local authorities is to be uh, applauded. And then when the local authorities come round, it's very encouraging because that says that things can change for the better. And then when you see participation evolving into the democracy, where you've got local representatives in, in the wild forest, you know, involved in their local community, then becoming uh, local elected councillors, and hopefully that uh, they'll see issues through different lenses. And I think that that's so important for community leadership. The more you can understand of the different people that you're involved with, the more likely that you, you can be a, a person that uh, helps find solutions that enhance community infrastructure, both in terms of social and physical. Hearing about, in Broxbourne, the new centre that you've got, you know, what happens when the million pound runs out? What happens to those assets? Who is left? The local council? I think that is a conundrum, but I think that it's more likely if we can see the, the bringing together of participation and elected uh, local councillors than those nightmare situations where assets are just lost and once again become derelict buildings and are, are a blight on, on the community. It's less likely to happen if you can bring those two very good forces uh, together. Yes, David, you want to come, come in on that? What you find is that uh, the very fact that you're fighting the council is what brings people together in the first place. So once you're getting on with them, that sort of initial reason for people getting out of bed is not there. Well, it'd be great to hear from people who are actually doing this in, in the big locals. Noel, you, you had a point. I don't think actually fighting your council is as uh, energising as, as you suggest, actually. We've been in battle with our local council for three years or more around our um, local community centre. And I think we've lost a lot of people along the way because people felt it was a hope battle and we were wasting all of our time and energy on that and we had to kind of work to make sure other things were happening as well. I think what's been incredibly important about the Local Trust, the Big Local Initiative, is that it's empowered our community by giving us some money. So our council only speak to money, they only understand the language of money, they aren't interested in community and the fact that we had enough money to know that we could do something properly for the long term with our community centre was given to us by having that money. We also were able to access knowledge and skills and experience through the local trust and making relationships is the other thing. So we've spent a long, long time attempting to make positive and professional relationships with our council. We've mostly been rebuffed because they really haven't been interested and they hoped we'd just curl up and go away. And then we had a change of power after three years. One of those young councillors up and coming uh, we'd made a good relationship with him and he thought what we were doing was fantastic. He came to everything we did and he became the local leader at the age of 27 or something incredible. And he's just been our absolute saviour. He's just like, well, of course you should have the community centre. Look at what you're doing without the community centre. You know, it's been an incredible opportunity and an incredible learning for us. We haven't quite got it. We're uh, going to the scrutiny at the council this month, but we are almost definitely going to have a public announcement at the committee meeting 
on the 11th of February. So we're kind of got everything crossed right. at the moment. How long have you been using it? At the back of the community <coughs> centre was an unused clinic. We got given it last March, so we've not even been in there for a year, that's right, isn't it? Yeah. And that's made all the difference because the community centre's right in the heart of the most disenfranchised part of our community. We've painted it up, it's a welcoming, lovely space, which it wasn't before. Want to say something about numbers? Definitely, as Noel said, is making a massive difference. It is used pretty much every day of the week. The office is really busy. The space, it is a community space and it is a community hub. And we are definitely, in terms of levels of engagement, we've really done quite a lot in the last 11 years, and that's only the beginning. What you're painting there is an increasingly active community where there's more connections going on. And in a way, surely a local authority would want to see that? I mean, I think that's the point that you make, David, in the essay, isn't it? That the representative democracy bit of it should work better if there's a more active and engaged community that they're working with. For some reason, they don't always like it. I don't know why that should be. It's very peculiar. But I mean, I remember that um, Chatham, when the council heard that, that they weren't going to be controlling the million pounds themselves, the officers slammed the pile down the table and stormed out. But there is also a sense, I think, that um, people and institutions will own the poor. They own them. And that's the problem. Local authorities own them. Charities own them too. Somehow we need to break out of that. Where we are in Kidderminster, we're like developing small locals within the big local area. Because how do you make people feel confident enough to have a voice? Money comes in, projects take place, and then the money goes and the project stops. So these are communities that have been let down. And they're used to people saying, well, we know what's best. You know, you need this, you need that, you need the other. And in fact, that's not true. Because these local people, if you can empower them to begin to have their own voice and make micro decisions about where they live, then they are becoming a much more democratic type people. And that's not anti-government or anything like that, but it's about local people developing a resilience that is going to last beyond the money. I think the important thing in our partnership is we want to grow people. We spend a pound a year and we lease a flat in a high-rise block. The community housing very kindly. I think we meet some of their targets anyway by having the flat. But we pay a pound a year and we're currently looking at another area that we've got that's really hard to reach and we're looking at doing the same deal there. So we only want to spend a pound a year, if we can, on buildings and we spend most of our money on, on people. A lovely phrase that you're, you, you use there, that you're growing people. That is part of the answer to you, Jonathan, I suppose, isn't it's it? It's not a top-down, oh, we're going to grow you. It's the other way. It's saying, we will facilitate you forming your own group. But we've got no idea what that group will decide to do. A, a lot of people say to us, so what are your outcomes? You know, what do you expect to happen? And I say, well, no idea. Because at the end of the day, it ain't me that's making the decision. So you have to be flexible enough to let people grow in the way that they want to grow. I think that's really important. The grassroots kind of messy context that allows people to take control for themselves. That is, in a way, the answer to Jonathan's question about what happens when big local goes, because big local may go, but the people who are involved are still there. They're still active. They're still trying to play a role in their communities. I wonder, while we're with 
Kidderminster. Whether you could tell us a little bit about the, the story. We've heard some words like council intransigence, quite sort of combative terms. So thinking back to the process that you went through, did it feel like a power struggle? It wasn't the council, it was local councillors who operated in our area who were used to making decisions for that area on the basis of we know what's best and we know what you would like. And they wanted to come in and control the partnership. It led to some very bitter discussions. It's in our terms of reference now that councillors are banned from being partnership members because of these local councillors who really were preventing growth in a way mm. because they were fighting for money to be spent on things that actually weren't what the community wanted. They actually put off the local residents getting involved. That was the big issue. Um, the more they fought, the less people wanted to come to meetings or be interested because it was only going to be the councillors who were talking. How difficult was it to kind of wrest power from from the local councillors? We had to actually get help from local trust, mm. from our rep. There was lots of meetings with the councillors. The councillors were banished, as it were, from our meetings. We were at a very low ebb because we had to start again with finding the local residents who would come back. And it took us a long, long time to actually yeah. get over that and rebuild and, and have a partnership. And that partnership is so much stronger, though, from, from what they've been through. We still have that in our terms of reference. Yeah. However, there was a, an added... <laughs> Talk about Sarah, Brenda. <laughs> yeah, well, one of our partners wanted to become a councillor, so we brought it to the partnership meeting and um, we changed our terms of reference because we are a bit protocoly and what have you. Um, but we think that's necessary because if people leave, then there's something left to follow. We've had to introduce a type of perder <laughs> Um, during the elections, and that was because in the local council elections there was a significant amount of conflict at a local event that could have got a bit fisticuffy, really. <laughs> and in the end, we said, right, people can't wear two hats. Six weeks before an election, you cannot use the partnership and things you're doing on the partnership in the election. <laughs> What's the situation like now, Jane? We now have a very strong partnership and they've benefited from having gone through all those challenges in the early days. Lots of nods from Wormley and Turnford there. Just why are you nodding so vigorously? What's a really important point that Brenda made is the difference between elected councillors and the council. And I think that's interesting, isn't it? Because often they are local people who have their own personal journey that is often, I think, about power. That's how it appears to me. We are in a very, very strong Tory stronghold. So there's a very particular way of doing things. So I think it's really interesting. And what we've seen with the change of leader, it's still the same party actually, but with the change of leader and a much younger person who's got more involved with the community and has actually really lived and grown up in the community. And I think that's the big difference with him. The two councils are very different. Wormley and Turnsford, Broxbourne is basically a one-party state, whereas Wire Forest is a bitterly divided place politically and always has been for some reason. I don't know why that should be. It's very important to build institutions, I think, in those circumstances, and you're doing so. 
What would you say about the idea that Big Local kind of enables this alternative power to arise and that that's just as open to being abused as a council? There's always a danger of that with any group of people that comes together. You know, power can corrupt. That's a possibility. But I think that the difference with Big Local is that the partnership and the way it's run and the ethos of it, for us, that's come really strongly with our um, local trust representative. And when we've had difficulties, he's really helped us to find a democratic solution to that. The growing of people is the bit that every single member of our partnership knows that if they if they think I'm being too strong and bossy, because I can be, Brenda and I had a bit of a laugh about, you know, when you're the chair, it's kind of, you sometimes have to be slightly, but I really hope I listen and my partnership would never fear to go, actually, you're too strong there and we don't agree with that. When I first started, I was told that you have to enable some of the stuff to fail as well because the project is essentially about learning. We've got families that are three and four generation unemployed. They are people who have been disenfranchised and who, quite frankly, don't vote. They don't feel that they have any voice and to give someone some confidence and some resilience to feel that they can express how they feel, I think is absolutely what it's about. Yeah, so I think Jess's question, in a way, was a, a bit about legitimacy because on the representative democracy side, there's accountability structures and so on, and that is more difficult to see. It's not as formalised on the participatory democracy side of things. I'm going to come to you, Adam. You work with some of the most progressive local authorities across Britain. Surely it's not all like this, is it? Well, <laughs> there are a limited number of local authorities that I would say that have actually completely got this and have really made the effort to shift to try and hand power and resource and to trust communities. I mean, the one that's often mentioned is Wigan, of course, which has you know, made real efforts over a number of years to change the way it works. I would say there's a considerable number of other authorities where parts of the council are trying to make an effort to work in a different way uh, with communities and to have a more collaborative, egalitarian relationship. But many of the people you speak to in those councils who have those aspirations and trying to work differently often feel they're you know, swimming against the tide, having to push quite hard. And then I think there's a very long tail of other councils that simply haven't even begun to think about these issues. So I think there's still a huge amount of work to do. But one point I would make, I think it's also important to acknowledge that this isn't just an issue for councils. This is an issue for the whole of the public sector. If you think councils are uh, hierarchical, self-interested, dismissive of communities, wait till you meet the NHS or wait till you meet the DWP. This is something across the whole of the public sector and it's about mindsets, decades of public servants being encouraged to see their work and see their institution in a certain way. And it's about culture, really, and the need to fundamentally shift the culture of those organisations to be much more open and not to be fundamentally about hoarding power and money, but about giving power and money away. Why do you think it is such a challenge for councils? We have spent at least seven decades, probably more, allowing institutions to think about themselves as something special. The very notion of institution is this idea that we are this separate body, separate from everyone else out there. We're the parent and everyone else out there is a child who needs looking after. 
For anyone who's worked in an organization knows you can move structures around, but changing the culture, changing the norms, changing the behaviors is the really hard thing to do. This is why an LGN, you talk about a paradigm shift and paradigm shifts are all about mindsets, values, culture and the goals and so on. Easily said, quite hard to do with your kind of helicopter view. Do you see things moving in the right direction? Yes, we're at the very early stages of it. The really big challenges that councils and the wider public sector face can only be addressed by moving to a, a model which is about preventing crises emerging in the first place in people's lives, whether that's a healthcare crisis, a family crisis, a financial crisis you need to move towards a preventative model. That means working with the community, putting the community in charge, because someone gets into a crisis, they turn up at A&E, or they turn up at the door of the council, and the council or the public servant has to deal with that problem that's emerged. You know, to use the jargon people call acute response. Prevention requires putting the community in charge, letting the community have power, letting them take responsibility. So that has been recognised, and increasingly, councils and public sector recognising that that means putting the community in charge and shifting the way they work, but it is early days. I want to give you an opportunity to come in at the Institute of Government. What sort of work do you do at a local authority level or at a community level? I'd like to thank Adam for stealing the point that I wanted to make. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> Sorry about that. The good thing about uh, podcasts is you can make it and you can edit it. Yeah, exactly. Edit him. But no, I think you're, you're totally right that like, it's important to see the context in which councils operate. So if you go back to 2010, they had something like a thousand statutory duties, so things you have to do. You have to tick a box on a form, send it to people in Whitehall and say, yes, we saw a child on a child protection plan within 28 days, or we did this. And that's a very top-down approach to, to managing things. One interesting example of the fact that it's so hard to shift culture, the government decided to remove a lot of targets for children's social care, which is an area I know a bit more about in 2010. So we're no longer going to hold you to account for whether you meet somewhat arbitrary timescales, like are you seeing children within four weeks if they're on a protection plan? But interestingly, at the local level, lots of local authorities said, great, but they just kept the same targets in place because kind of it's very hard to shift people out of that mindset. I don't think big locals do set targets. So I'm looking at our big local representatives. Do you have anything like targets or long-term goals? Key priorities, but those key priorities tend to be quite flexible. Growing yes. volunteers is one of our key priorities, but that doesn't tell you how to do it, how you're going to do it, how many volunteers you're going to get, what sort of volunteers. It's just we think we should grow volunteers. Can I say though, there was something in David's essay that did strike with us, um, and that was the bit in when he talked about squares and blobs. What I read, I thought was fascinating. David, can you just tell us what is a square and what is a blob? A square is responsible for the local authority, they're responsible for the money, they need to get things done, and they have systems and procedures, and the, the blobs are the people with the energy and the vitality that make things happen in the community, but how do you bring the two together? In the ideal world, that would be the role of a local councillor. The local councillor would be the one representing their community, helping their community navigate their way through this you know, incredibly confusing, uh, very different type of organisation like a local council. But I think many councillors end up sort of going native, so also they end up taking on this tick box mentality, or they're involved in a different organisation altogether, which is a political party, which, you know, themselves are highly dysfunctional, <laughs> totally ridiculous organisations with absurd cultures. And so they end up getting taken away from actually doing that job of genuinely being 
that intermediary between the institution and the community. I think sometimes in, in some of the some of the local areas, if a local authority is run by one political party, I think very often there is a complacency within the local community, you know, to get involved and, and support some of the local activities because they, they have not seen a shift. And I think local councillors as well very often are, are quite complacent. They don't really necessarily support community-based activities because they know that whatever happens, they will get elected again. So one of the things I did when I first started was I looked at the figures and, for example, in 2018, only 22.8% of residents vote in local elections. For me, that figure shows that there is a definitely some sort of disconnection between local authorities and, and residents. And I, I said to Noel a couple of weeks ago, I, I would love for some of the local residents actually to stand local elections as well, you know, so it's not left to a couple of people, maybe from wealthy families or whatever, is, but, you know, for local residents to have enough courage to do it, you know. Uh, just in case any of you thought I was feeling a bit too plobby, <laughs> I want to say something in favour of the squares for a second. Because I think we've got to understand the squares and the local authority squares, anyway, have lost 40% of their budget over the last 15, 10 years. Yeah. More. More. So, you know, in many ways, they are completely stuck. So if they're obsessed with money, this is partly why. They haven't got any. So you've got to understand that, I think. And it, it's quite difficult. And I think it's very difficult for big locals in very poor areas, like Blackpool, for instance, where I went to in the last essay I wrote. It took them a year just to get a meeting with the council official in charge of business. It took them uh, you know, a year after they got the council to put up a security camera. They found nobody bothered to switch it on. They're stuck under this great sort of terrible fine tick box system, which is partly their own fault, partly imposed on them, partly something they impose on themselves. But that's exactly where the relationship comes in. Our council is in a, a real double bind because they pride themselves on the fact they've kept their rates really low, which it absolutely infuriates me. Um, and they can't put them up because it's so incrementally small, the amount they're allowed to. But that's the place where we can have the relationship, where we can say actually an empowered community can really help you think about together what we can do with the small amount we've got. In the end, we're going to have to turn these big locals into some sort of local institution without them becoming too square. You're nodding at that, Adam. No, absolutely. I mean, that's the big thing that worries me about this whole idea of community power, as we call it, is is there a risk that as local councils hand over power and resource to communities that you do just create a lot of other little examples of the public sector institution out there? Some of these organisations will become squares instead of blobs. So you've got to keep open to the possibility that you've just got to have new blobs emerging, that you can't just say, oh, here's a big local group or whatever group it is, and that's fine, we've done the job. Some years down the line, you will need new blobs emerging to challenge that organisation which has become square as it's got more money and got more power. I run a small charity, a small national charity in my non-local trust guys, and I think that if a charity stays small enough and closely aligned enough to the reason it was set up in the first place. It doesn't have to become a square. It can be a, a kind of blobby square or whatever. But we're in the process of setting up a legal entity and our terms of reference, our charitable objectives are all about growing people. And I think if that's what you keep focused on, that to me feels like it's the more likely way of being able to keep this going. But um, of course, there's always the danger that charities become too big and become square. Brenda, you wanted to come in on, on that particularly, yeah. didn't you? We're setting up a legacy organisation as well, and we've employed a person for two years, a project manager. But the vision will be around the big local vision. So what we want to happen is when the big local has gone, 
that there is an entity that has the same vision as the big local does so that it, they don't become squares, hopefully. <laughs> mm -hmm. One final point, because I think there's been uh, one element which has been missed in this discussion, which is the role of national government and central government. You know, maybe been a bit harsh on councils and the public sector more generally. I mean, there is a total lack of leadership from central government on this agenda. My experience, most ministers, people working in government haven't even got the beginnings of a clue about the sorts of things that are happening through big local, about community power in general. The big shift towards a more community power approach will not happen without national politicians getting behind this agenda and really pushing it. It sounds to me like we're talking about a cultural shift and a paradigm shift. That won't happen. National government won't intervene and restructure things without a large demonstration of that informal activity going on in communities. So the sort of stuff that Big Local is doing, that creative mess that is helping people to grow and take power, needs to carry on and be sustained so that government can see there is something actually to harness. Yes, there's a role for national government, but all of the other things also need to change almost at the same time. So. Coming towards the end, I think it's right that the author of the essay should probably have the final word. Does anybody else have anything they'd like to say before I hand over to David to, to finish? We don't view the local council in a negative way. We've got some good relationships with the local council now. So a lot of what we've been talking about is archive in a way. So we're not anti the local council. They do some good stuff. David. Some years ago, I, I gave a talk at the Lambeth Council, then a cooperative council, about um, how you do co-production. And this guy afterwards took me aside. He was wearing a tweed jacket and he said, you know, I really try to be more cooperative. I really try to put this in practice in my work. I found it very hard. And I said, what, what department do you? And he said, trading standards. And it made you think, you know, there are some things actually, you know, you just, you just got to be a bit squarey. <laughs> what I think we need to do is to build these institutions, which can be the middle ways in which you're doing without making them into blobs. That's the, the problem. And also the solution, I think, probably. Hopefully. I think it just remains for me to say thank you so much to everybody for coming along and participating in this chat. Hope you enjoyed it. I did. And see you next time. Well, I hope you enjoyed that discussion. Thank you very much for listening. Remember that all our essays and other material is available on the Local Trust website at localtrust.org.uk. Bye. <laughs>